2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chelsea Rathburn is the Poet Laureate of Georgia. She's a professor at Mercer University and thinks it's thrilling to help students find the language to tell their stories. Rathburn says, Many of the writers I work with are like me, first-generation college students, and I want them to understand that their voices, their stories, matter. Her critically acclaimed collection, Still Life with Mother and Knife, explores the struggles of postpartum depression and harsh realities of childhood. Later in the program, We'll revisit our interview with Chelsea Rathburn. First, Arts Exchange Community Cultural Center in East Point is dedicated to empowering artists and activists. Whose America is it anyway? Is the exhibition on view now in the Jackson Sinclair Gallery at Arts Exchange? The show examines today's social, political, and racial struggles. Renowned artist, Dr. Fahamu Peku was the juror for the exhibition. He joins us now via Zoom with gallery committee members and curators Rick Washington and Lisa Tuttle. Welcome to City Lights. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lois. Would you tell us about the title of this show? I'd be happy to.
3: We started out with the question of whose America is this anyway? And this came right on the heels of the insurrection on January 6th. It was a conversation I had with Lisa Tuttle. And we thought that this would be an appropriate time to have uh, artists weigh in on their feelings of this because so many people were so strongly claiming ownership of this country, but it seemed contrary to anybody that I knew. So we put a perspective out leaving just enough room in there for the artists to form their own point of view, not wanting to refer to any specific movement, any particular event that was happening. And I was interested to see what reaction we would get from the artists. I thought we would get submissions about BLM, about the Trump insurrection, about George Floyd murder and other current events that are turning the world upside down. I was pleased to see that we got that and so much more. The artists really, really presented 360 degrees of of the who and they came with the when, the how and the where. Uh, So this exhibition really presents a mirror image. So many of the artists did self-portraits or reflective kinds of works that lay their own claim, their own franchise of this America and and how they feel about it. So I thought it was very, very important that artists have a, a chance to express themselves during this time. And and that was really the, uh, it was very successful in what what we wanted to do and, and what actually the outcome was.
2: Lisa, were you also struck by the range of applicants?
4: Yes, and we, we really have, uh, this is our second juried show that we have done in our location. And Rick and I really crafted the idea for the show. Together, And we were also trying to work towards an exhibition that would fit within a a festival that we had at the end of July, which was Reimagined Democracy, Art and Social Justice Festival. So we loved the opportunity to give so many different artists a chance to show in the gallery and to, to express their views. So it was very exciting.
2: Addressing racial, social, and political struggles covers a broad area. Were there any specific guidelines for the artists?
3: No, we, we didn't have any guidelines. We wanted the artists to be free to express themselves on whatever level that they wanted to. In the jury process, we combed through the work and sought out pieces that had the strength and clarity that we thought would be a good fit for the
2: exhibition. How many artists are featured in this exhibition? It's 33. And Fahamu, judging the submissions, what elements were you looking for in terms of deciding who would be accepted and who would be awarded?
5: My role was really around selecting the prize winners for the exhibition. Ah. What I really try to do whenever I look at art is just really try to find something that reaches me, that grabs me, that resonates with me. And there were several works in the exhibition that that did that. But, you know, of course, there were standouts as well. But I was really moved by the range of disciplines that are represented in the exhibition, you know, really moved by the range of experience. You know, there were emerging artists and, and very well-established artists, you know, alongside one another. And so it's a very compelling exhibition and, and so much rich work and so many important conversations being had in the work. And
2: what was it that distinguished those three award-winning works? Can you describe each of them?
5: Yes. The first place winner is a, a work by Alexis Childress, and it's a digital collage, digital photograph that shows a uh, pair of hands that have gold dripping from the hands, but the hands are also appear to be bound at the wrist by a thin white wire. And that piece just really, really struck me. Um, It made me think about the the untapped potential that a lot of particularly uh, Black people experience in this country where you are bound up and limited based on racial perceptions, but there being so much talent so much love and so gifted, you know, in terms of the things that uh, people are able to offer that, are, that often go unseen. Um, and it just really struck me that this very, in this very simple way, the artist was able to kind of capture the essence of, you know, having so much to offer, but also being bound up at the same time. The second place winner was Jonathan Banks, and this was a piece called The Possibilities, which again, really struck me as a really important narrative or when we ask that question, whose America is is it anyway? Again, I think there's so many people who are uh, marginalized and, and silenced because, you know, certain voices tend to rise to the top and others get ignored. And I just thought that work, as well as the third place winner Joe Dreher's work, were, were really powerful pieces that talked about the potential uh, that we have. But also, I really appreciated the materiality, especially of Joe Dreyer's piece, which was a uh, Alive and painting on tar paper. And all in all, I mean, it was a really difficult task to kind of select the winners, but it was also really eye-opening. I really appreciated the opportunity to experience the exhibit in this way.
2: I'm thinking back on some of what Rick was saying, and it reminded me of a conversation I had with the former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, Are you familiar with his podcast series? No, I'm not. It's titled Being American. And he was pondering just what you all were discussing in terms of whose country is this anyway? And isn't it all of ours? I'm curious about the scope of. The 33 works that are represented in this show, does it give us a range of whose America it is?
3: Absolutely. I believe it does. It ranges from pop figures to historical figures to self-portraits. And there's uh, a digital uh, video uh, work that is in here as well, uh, which is kind of a, a dichotomy of dancing and picking cotton and money raining from the sky. Uh, only for those who are doing all the work aren't reaping the benefits. So there are a lot of really cogent political and, and social statements that that are being made and that, and again, as Samos said, there's just a wide range of media that's being used and just a wide range of techniques that maybe makes it a very interesting
2: tapestry. Lisa, you mentioned the reimagined democracy. Art and Social Justice Festival, and you hosted a People's Choice Award for that.
4: Why was it
2: important to give viewers a chance to vote on their favorite work?
4: Well, I think it's always important to find ways to include viewers in making choices because they're not really always familiar with how these works got selected or how the judge may have made their choices, and they may have different ideas about what they think the best work is. We also had artist talks during the festival as well, but we gave an opportunity, and we'll build on it on our next show, but we were going to have a lot of people in and out of the building, and who were looking at the awards, and just thought it would be great for people to vote so out of that they selected ronnie phillips piece uh, lost and found which is an image of a, a painted image with a woman an african-american woman looking at a clothesline and hanging on the clothesline are excerpts of lost and found letters of black families after the civil war looking for lost relatives mm. And it, it's very touching, and I think it's very personal, and it really appealed to, to our group that, that came in as very, very charming and very touching piece.
3: Now, one thing I'd like to add is that we had 33 artists, but there are at least 42 to 44 pieces of work uh, in the show. And the reason being is that we got so much work to choose from that there were submissions that, were, that exceeded the size limitations that we had for the gallery. We, we knew that there could only be works up to 36 inches you know, in height or width uh, to fit in the gallery so we could get all the artists in, but we received works that were five and six feet. And what we decided to do was to extend the show beyond the gallery and the work is all up and down the halls in the Arts Exchange is really a wonderful experience because now you have all of this focused work in the gallery and then these larger, larger expressive pieces all up and down the hallway, which really makes for a well-rounded show.
2: I'm impressed with the mission of Arts Exchange. I know it's designed to be inclusive and diverse. And I was hoping each of you might comment on the role of the artist to affect positive change.
5: One of the things that, that really strikes me about this exhibition, but even more broadly, you know, uh, to your question, the role of the artist, is this idea that art is about bringing comfort to the disturbed and disturbing the comfort. Comforted, you know? Mm -hmm. And I can't remember exactly who said that quote, but I've always appreciated the sentiment in that, you know, that art is that expression, it's the the communication, it's the language that allows us to to communicate with one another beyond words. So many of us find ourselves silenced for one reason or another, you know, given politics and history and, and, and all these different things, art becomes the way for us to exist, to affirm, but more importantly, to connect.
3: I I believe that the ability to see yourself in a piece of artwork is one of the most moving things that the artist can contribute. Uh, The Three selected uh, awardees in the show each presented a piece that I think really reflected themselves and it also reflected images that we can see ourselves in the work and which are things that you, you just don't forget. Especially the Joe Dreyer piece uh, for me, uh, it looks like fragments of a man. The face is torn apart, almost like a Beard Bearden kind of collage on the tar paper, but it's just haunting. It's a haunting reminder of the divergent kind of history that we're talking about. So I think that the artist really can evoke social change and and change in people when people see themselves in the work.
4: And I would just say that for me too, as an artist, and I would say that's probably true of both Rick and Fahamu as well, but, you know, I'm a, I'm an artist, but I also am a a citizen and a a woman and a a person with my own political views. And um, it comes through in my work and in a way that I think it's in the same way that to have this exhibition, the other thing about the arts exchange is it's intergenerational. There's all sorts of ages there, and it was a way. It's a way to see a group of people and meet a group of people and have an exchange of ideas where you feel like you belong. You're establishing in some ways some shared values.
2: Curators Lisa Tuttle and Rick Washington, with The artist and juror, Fahamu Peku, Whose America Is It Anyway?, is on view in the Jack Sinclair Gallery at the Arts Exchange Community Cultural Center through September 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from Chelsea Rothburn the Poet Laureate of Georgia. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta.
1: The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U
2: This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chelsea Rathburn is the Poet Laureate of Georgia. Her most recent collection, Still Life with Mother and Knife, explores the struggles of postpartum depression and harsh realities of childhood, when Rathburn spoke with us last year, she explained how the book's epigraph prepares readers for what follows.
1: Well, I, I think it announces some of the dangers that are present in the book. This is a book that contains a lot of darkness. You know, I had questions when I was writing it, questions about my capacity as a mother. Uh, but also when I became a mother, I started thinking back on my own childhood, my own girlhood um, about so many dangerous things that had happened, you know, sort of near misses and, and brushes with danger. And uh, and I also thought a, a lot about uh, the stories that my female relatives told about motherhood and uh, about pregnancy and uh, the early days of motherhood. And I thought about the darkness in those stories and the way that those stories sort of cast a shadow over my own pregnancy and my own own oh, motherhood hmm.
2: postpartum a fairy tale describes the brothers grim rendered most grim with lowercase g and one m some terrifying references there to how your mother and aunt loved but loathed you and your cousin did they really share such horrible thoughts with you <laughs>
1: They <laughs> they actually did, yeah. At what age? <laughs> I, as early as I can remember. So I, I probably heard these stories, I'm guessing, from the time I was six or seven. I mean, of course, they, they, they loved us. You know, but my mother said that in the first weeks after childbirth, she just had these dark fantasies. She didn't, she didn't want to hurt me herself, right? But she hoped that they, they had a Siamese cat, and she just hoped that the cat would... Jump into my crib and, and uh, smother me! And, oh my God! Yeah, she really. told you this when you were six. I I mean, thinking back, I think that's how young I was. Uh, you know, I might have been eight, eight or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Lois. I was so scared uh, to show this poem to my mother uh, after I'd written it. It was it was coming out in a magazine, I think the Missouri Review, and I finally finally had her sitting at my dining room table and said, "Okay, <laughs> you, you should read this one." And, uh, and she read it and, and she laughed. <laughs> she, she said, well, I, I did tell these stories. You know, this is, this is true. The, you know, this was her experience. Um, and one of my aunts said, you know, as, as referenced in the poem, her bizarre fantasy was that my cousin would end up in a washing machine. Hmm, okay. Well,
2: I'm glad that your relationship with your mom isn't really that dark, and I love hearing you laugh after reading that. Working Through Difficulty with Your Mother continues with the poem Introduction to Home Economics. What is the significance of this poem?
1: Well, this is a poem... <laughs> This is about maternal guilt (laughs) and uh, my own guilt as a mother. And also, uh, you know, mothers have, I think, an uncanny ability to make their children feel guilty. And uh, this was Introduction to Home Economics is is a story about uh, something that that did happen when I was very young. When I was six years old, my mother and I were on the front porch carving jack-o'-lanterns. And for some reason, my mother let me help carve. And, uh, and I, I ended up uh, slicing her hand um, very badly. And she had to go to the emergency room. And But the, the thing that was interesting was, as I was growing up, every single Halloween, my mother would remind me, you know, some things, there would be some joke about it, some comment about, uh, yeah, that, you know, that year that you tried to kill me you know tried to stab me, uh, slice my hand with, with this knife and, and it wasn't until you know my, my daughter was was born and uh, starting to have her first Halloweens and I finally, after all these years of feeling guilty about this, I, I sort of took a step back and said, wait a minute, what was I doing with that knife <laughs> When I was six years old, what on earth? why I would I, you know my, my daughter's eight now and she doesn't handle butcher knives.
2: No. And in fact, the last line of that poem is, though she was the one who handed me the knife, she being
1: your mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was trying to sort of explore all the, all of the sides, all of the nuances there. And of course, it's also, I think, about, when the title is Introduction to Home Economics, the first section of the book, all of the poems are titled Introduction to Blank, right? They're They're sort of uh, lessons in girlhood, uh, initiations into womanhood. And, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting in my memory, you know, my parents got back from the hospital and my mother was bandaged, but she still was the one who resumed the task of mothering. And I, rem- I may maybe misremembering, but what I remember is that she went back out with me and, and she was the one who finished carving those jack-o'-lanterns with me. I was thinking, you know, also about gender roles and and, uh, the things that my mother did for me.
2: Introduction to Art History is in three sections. The second is titled A Brief History of Women's Art, which conveys centuries of information in one stanza. And the third portion is The Birth of Venus. Would you talk about the theme of visual art in your poetry?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, it's interesting that you bring this poem up because I, had, I struggled to write this poem. Later in the book, the book is very concerned with, with the visual arts and uh, with the female body and the way that the female body is rendered in classical art, high art, that is, museum pieces, um, but also in things like Playboy magazine, you know, and I, I was also, uh, when I was in college, I, I, I modeled for an artist, for a sculptor, and so I was thinking about, you know, I've had experiences sort of on, on both sides of the canvas, you know, uh, uh, as an observer and appreciator of art, but also watching the artist sketching me, and I'm just, I love all forms of art, but I, I really love paintings and sculptures. I feel sometimes that I write about my my own life, my own experience primarily, Uh, but I I really do love engaging with works of art as ways to also get outside myself a little bit, not writing purely from my own experience, but uh, interacting with art. I think that uh, art gives poets a new way of of rendering the
2: world. I especially appreciate it the line from the birth of Venus. But more surprising than her beauty was how she radiated happiness, which should have been art's antidote.
1: Would you unpack that? Oh, sure. Well, that that section, I was uh, thinking back about my time uh, modeling uh, for a sculptor in college. And... I had come up uh you know through through junior high uh, through high school, you know thinking of myself as as a kind of artist, uh, I started writing poems at, at a young age uh, I was in a magnet uh, magnet school for the arts in middle school, doing creative writing and uh, my my friends and I you know we all thought that art had to be it had to be very very dark right uh, depressing um you know that we were, we were sort of bleeding onto the page you know it just putting our raw pain and confusion of being teenagers onto the page. And and then I, when I was in college, I um, answered a classified ad. I went to Florida State University and and, uh, people could take out little classified ads in the student newspaper. And so I connected with this artist, her name is uh, Holly Jill Smith, she's a sculptor. And she wasn't much older than me. She was still in her, I think early to mid twenties. And she was gorgeous. I mean, she really looked like Botticelli's Venus. So beautiful. And she was happily married and she was just this wonderful, as I say, in, in the, the line that you quoted, you know, I, I thought that happiness was art's antidote. You know, I thought, well, how, how can you be happy and creative at the same time? And being around her, I really thought, oh, they're, they're, this is a strange model. Maybe the model I've had in my head is not, is not quite right. You know, there are
2: alternatives. The Greek tragedy of Medea is another recurring theme in this collection. Would you read from Furious Medea, 1838, the portion that begins? How many times have I seen that look?
1: Absolutely. This is a poem that is in conversation with Eugene Delacroix's Paintings and sketches of Medea, which I encountered. I had a severe case of postpartum depression and uh, struggled with it for a long time. I was teaching a a world literature seminar and encountered, I think I was, well, I was teaching Euripides tragedy Medea and uh, came across, you know, putting, I think putting together PowerPoint slides or something, um, came across Delacroix's painting. And so the beginning of the poem is describing It's describing the painting, it's describing the fact that in this painting, uh, Medea, who will go on to slaughter her children, she is caught in the moment before it happens. So she's holding the knife, but the the painting is very still and it's beautiful. It's soft and beautiful, uh, but still you can see in in one child's face in particular, there is terror. How many times have I seen that look? The flash of fear on my young daughter's face, when I've raged at her or some small thing. It passes, the fury and the terror. My daughter puts on socks and the driver yields, but I'm left shaken, a stranger. Maybe all mothers murder their children's innocence. In the painting, Medea holds her boys so close, they're one body again, two cords she must cut. The children have no choice but to love the hand that holds the knife.
2: Do you believe that all mothers murder their children's innocence?
1: Uh, I, I I know I, I I certainly felt that way when I was in the thick of being a new mother. Uh, as I mentioned, I, you know, I had pretty severe case of postpartum depression. I I will stand by that. Yeah, I'm you know, thinking about my own childhood. Um, I think that I. I think the children are resilient and uh, we bounce back from some of those. But I also, you know, some of those small things that our parents do, you know, but I also think that as parents, we're we're all fallible and uh, all of us lose our tempers and sometimes make decisions that are are bad decisions. So that's what I'm really referring to. I'm not, you know, I'm not referring to uh, saying every every is going to uh, destroy her child's life. Of course.
2: Were you writing this as much for other women as for yourself?
1: Absolutely. I felt, uh, when I had my baby, I felt very much invisible. And we opened our conversation, you know, talking about the stories that my mother and my aunt would tell. My experience did not match those stories at all. You know, I, I did not have violent fantasies, um, I I Instead, I had a lot of suicidal ideation. I wanted very much all of my negative thoughts were turned toward myself and thinking I I don't deserve, uh, my child would be better off if I weren't her mother. Yeah, it's really terrible. (laughs) One of the saddest things was I was afraid to talk to anybody because in my irrational um, state of mind, I felt like if I was honest about everything that was going on, my baby would be taken away from me that I would be separated from her. And so I just sort of suffered, <laughs> didn't sort of suffer, I absolutely suffered in silence. And uh, it was, yeah, it was very difficult. Uh, so when I when I started writing, when I started trying to process all of this and thinking about my, my own girlhood and different experiences I had as a child, and, and then pregnancy, early motherhood, um, I, I was thinking about, you know, what what were some of the, what sort of book might have consoled me? What didn't I have when I was in that space? And so I I was absolutely thinking, you know, I would like if, you know, if one person were to pick the book up and feel seen, that would be wonderful.
2: Chelsea, how long did your depression last?
1: Oh, gosh. My daughter was born in January of 2012, and in... 2015, I flew to France by myself to study Eugene Delacroix's sketches of Medea. And for me, I obviously, I I did not have severe depression from 2012 to the end of 2015. But for me, that trip was what I felt like I finally got my life back. Like it it felt for a long time, sort of like layers of it were were peeling away. Um, But there was something about... I started writing these Medea poems, and then I decided, you know, I, I must go to France. <laughs> there are about, uh, I think it's 28 sketches that that uh, Delacroix made in preparation for the paintings, and those, those are not in public display, but I was able to sit in a documentation room at a museum and, and, and hold the actual sketches, and there was something about making that commitment to myself, you know, to go back to, I cashed in all my frequent flyer miles, and and it was my first time being away from my daughter for more than a night. Uh, previously, had only traveled away from her for one night at a time. And so there was something about sort of taking my life back, you know, and saying, okay. Um, and and it's, it's a little scary, you know, poets, we don't make um, a lot of money off of our poetry.
2: Really? Really,
1: I know, it's shocking. <laughs> So there was there was really something bold about saying okay you know I, I don't know if these poems are going to turn into anything or what's going to happen with them but I'm I'm believing in this project enough to pick up and fly to another country by myself away from my child this is important this matters and yeah that that was really what finally marked the end of it although I was emerging out of that depression for for a long time before that
2: I have to say in terms Of feeling validated, certainly the critical acclaim that this collection has received, and being named Poet Laureate of Georgia, I hope made you feel that cashing in all those sky miles was the right thing to do. I love the poem, reading Maurice Sendak, instead of a nice knit, would you read it to us?
1: Oh, absolutely. My second book was called A Raft of Grief. And it, it dealt largely with the end of my first marriage, and then meeting the man who would become my husband. And and so whenever I would give readings from that book, I always would have to explain, you know, well there, there are two husbands in this book, and there's, you know, the the not so great husband, and then the the perfect, charming, you know, Prince Charming comes along here. And my husband, as I was working on Still Life with Mother and Knife, my husband kept saying, well, where am I in this book? There are no poems about me here. You know, he says, it's not about you. It's not about you. So this is a poem that uh, I, I was consciously thinking about uh, my, my husband not appearing anywhere in the book, which is it's just funny, you know, given what, what happens here. I'm reading Maurice Sindak instead of Anaïs Nin. I wanted to write a poem about sex, the sex of the long married, about desire, its departures and returns. By way of the bobcat I met by chance on the curving lane below our house. It bolted, I drove on. Its body, the surprise of it, and my husband's body, his muscular hide, sleek as an animal's, which after all this time should not surprise, but does. I tried to write the poem praising my husband's form, the poem of gratitude, joy even. I'll use that word. But a phrase from a book intruded, a children's book followed by an actual child, our daughter dropping her towel, shouting, nay nay, and darting away. And it was her bright, joyful body I followed, laughing out of the poem and the room.
2: What does? this poem convey about a child's presence (laughs) in a
1: in a couple's life well i've been housebound with my wonderful daughter and my wonderful husband Um, and i feel (laughs) i feel as though at at the end of this pandemic lockdown i i think i know my daughter a lot better you know we've spent so many wonderful hours talking and laughing, and doing art projects, and taking nature walks, and all of this, I don't feel like I know, and that sounds terrible, I was gonna say, I don't feel like I know my husband as well, I do, we have a, a wonderful, terrific marriage, but I miss having intimate talks with him, you know, I feel like uh, my my daughter is, is omnipresent right now, and she's enjoyable, she's enjoyable, but being together through the coronavirus has really, amplified the ways that, that children do have a way of sort of taking over the family like <laughs> dynamics. Yeah, because she's, she's just, you know, she's, she can't go anywhere. Uh, she's doing virtual school down the hall right now. You know, and meanwhile, you know, my, my husband and I, all summer, you know, we normally, we look forward to having, uh, we sit down at the end of the day and have a drink together, have a conversation. And those conversations typically continue into the night. And uh, you know, all summer we watched my daughter's bedtime kind of creep later and later and later. You know, she's, she's just been, she's been around. I, I mean, I think, uh, I think in, in my case, having a child has in many ways, you know, deepened my relationship with my husband. I love watching him as a father. It's been really wonderful. He's, he's a fantastic father. But I, I do, you know, miss some of those days when it was just the two of us, or we had privacy.
2: They do grow up, Chelsea.
1: I I know. I know. And she's already at the age now where she's a reader. And so she just curls up, goes off by herself with a novel and comes out a couple hours later and says, oh, I finished my book. Oh, that's wonderful. She's been reading the Percy Jackson series this week. We read all the Harry Potter books as a family. She went on a Nancy
2: Drew kick last spring. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I read Nancy Drew and there's still kids still relate to it. I don't know. I mean, was the feminism just so far ahead of its
1: time with Nancy Drew? Yeah, it's been one really wonderful to see her. Uh, I, I hope she doesn't become a writer, but that's a possibility out there.
2: Yeah, I would say it's certainly observed on a daily basis in your household. The Face on the Chalice is a poem about death. A deer your neighbor has killed while hunting. And it's also elegiac about the death of a friend. I was particularly moved by the words, I see what is not there as well as what is. Could that also be your creed as a poet?
1: i I think that's beautiful <laughs> i i think i'm i had i had never thought of that um uh, but i I think I will from now on if...
2: <laughs> well, I feel honored because clearly there are so many layers to this beautiful, dense language, and it's so wonderful to hear you laugh and to talk about the light in your life, as well as how beautifully you've captured and conveyed the darkness into this volume.
1: I did try, when I was shaping the book, I did want to include some joy (laughs) because I know the book goes to very dark places. You know, at the end, I, I return to my child, my daughter, and I have a poem called In the Shower My Daughter Studies My Naked Form, uh, where I wanted to come back and see that uh, that poem closes on an image of me watching my daughter when she sleeps. And, you know, the the feeling of just being overcome by joy and, and gratitude. You know, I wanted that to be an answer to show that, you know, it's possible to begin in a place as dark as some of the early postpartum poems and then come around, you know, there's a way through all of that. Chelsea Rathburn
2: is the Poet Laureate of Georgia. You can learn more about her recent collection, Still Life with Mother and Knife, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up next, a glimpse into the underground ballroom scene with ballroom legend Kiera Fox. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The ballroom scene is a fascinating subculture that gives a space for many in need of community. The documentary Paris is Burning focuses on the 1990s ball culture in New York City. Director Jenny Livingston followed African-American and Latinx gay, trans, and drag queens who participated in these elaborate balls. I sat down with out-on-film director Jim Farmer and ballroom legend Kiera Fox to discuss the movie. Kiera began by describing the ballroom scene.
0: I would describe ballroom scene as an expression maybe a counter expression to a lot of mainstream ideas, fashion, runway, modeling. It's a culmination of all those things together. Yeah. And and it really
2: becomes performance art. It is performance art. Does the
0: ballroom community still exist today? The ballroom community does exist today, even more in a mainstream culture. We've gone worldwide. So it's taken on a, it's growing. We're on TV, movies. When did it arrive in the South? Do you know? 1996, when the House of Escada, which was founded by Tony Moultrie, held the first house ball in Atlanta. And that's when Atlanta was introduced. Well, maybe not necessarily introduced, but that's when it came to Atlanta.
2: Okay, I wonder if that coincided with the Olympics, because that was when Atlanta hosted the Olympics.
0: It was in January, it was MLK, so I can't remember, MLK 1996 Martin Luther King weekend. So, yeah, so. so with the MLK weekend,
2: um, and you know that kicked off 1996, and the city had been counting down yes. till July, so this was all part of that excitement. How does the documentary, Paris is Burning, showcase the culture and
6: personal account of Balls? You know, the film came out um, in 1991. It's a chronicle of New York's drag scene in the 1980s. It really focuses on, you know, Balls, Vogue, and individuals. You know, it, it, I watched it again this morning, and it just it seems as relevant as ever. It really does. I mean, the film had such an influence on pop culture, such an influence on the LGBT community, the mainstream community. You you look at Pose today, which is Hughes, which is a direct influence, uh, Paris is Burning. You had films like Saturday Church, When the Beat Drops, uh, Kiki, Leave It on the Floor. It's made a profound impact. Again, it's just so topical.
2: One aspect of the film that's especially moving is how much of a family yes. community is provided by
0: the houses. Yeah. Would you talk about why the houses were created? In the early 70s, 80s, a lot of people were alienated from their families. So you, you picked a chosen family and there was a motherhead figure and a father figure to kind of replace the biological family that you lost. And so that was the origins of the ballroom family, to kind of just create another unity, you know, for people to get together and celebrate being who they were. And
2: uh, to become a house mother or a house father, this, this was a very responsible role and required a
0: lot of commitment. It required a lot of commitment, and um, it was a a role full of responsibility, and it meant a lot to be named a house mother, um, personally and in the ballroom. It spoke volumes about you, your career in the ballroom, your um, ballroom accomplishments, and over time, you start off as a regular member, and then over time, you make your way up the ranks, and then one day, you may be mother.
2: How long have you been a mother?
0: Well, I was a mother. Well, I walked my first ball in 1995 um, under the House of Escada. I became mother of the house in 2000, until 2008. I was the mother of the House of Escada, overall mother. You have certain mothers in different states, and you have your overall mother, the grandmother.
2: Oh, many people think of voguing as the song by Madonna, but it started out with the ballroom scene. And then became this phenomenon. Why did competitors start to vogue?
0: Voguing has element, it it has that sense of dance and kind of like a little shade towards the person you're voguing against, kind of like a little oomph to it. And that was, you know, those were the origins of performance. And actually there are three types of voguing. And I think a lot of people are familiar with Vogue Femme, which actually started off as Femme Queen Performance. Well, fem Queens are transgender women. In the ballroom, they're identified as Femme Queens. Um, cisgender men in the ballroom, they will be identified as Butch Queens. And they may be gay or straight, but they are dead. So the the voguing that you see the Butch Queens doing I, I actually originated with the Femme Queens. And then there's another type of performance, which is called Old Way, which is a lot of precision and 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 straight lines and then you have new way which is resembles breakdancing about stretching and that type of stuff. I mean, it it's really a riff
2: on the sort of exaggerated movements and postures that we associate yes. with traditional yes. fashion models. But the voguing in the ballroom scene goes further I mean it's downright acrobatic.
0: It is acrobatic hence the name voguing the poses that you would see in the high fashion magazines resembled some of the poses that the kids were doing when they were voguing so it was deemed voguing. Why were these compositions
2: especially important to African-American gay men and women?
0: I think it's really important when we talk about ballroom, we talk about acceptance and, and racism and things of that nature where a lot of African-Americans or people of color, there's a really strong Latin roots in ballroom as well. We're not accepted into the mainstream areas, into the mainstream pageantry, into the mainstream, so we created our own way to celebrate our own selves and our own beauty. One of
2: the categories upon which the contestants are judged Uh is realness. And this seems
0: sad to me because it had to do with passing. Passing, yeah. But we're in a different time. At that time, passing was survival. You know, you couldn't, if you couldn't walk down the street and make it to the store without getting clocked, you know, that could possibly mean your life.
4: Mm.
2: Do heterosexual or straight allies participate in balls now?
0: We have a bunch of straight and heterosexual, cisgender-normative allies in the ballroom. We have Rihanna. We have icons like Naomi Campbell, who comes to balls and sits and judges and walks. So we have a lot of allies, a lot. And, and obviously some in very high places. In very high places, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this
2: documentary was groundbreaking in 1990. Would you say the ballroom scene is still considered underground?
0: It has underground factions still, but it is more mainstream. But I I will say that the mainstream scene differs slightly from the underground scene. So there are small differences. So there still is an underground faction, but it is everywhere. Could you elaborate on what those differences are? Maybe the attendees, some of the categories themselves. You know, when it's a less high profile, you won't have those celebrities there. Right. So, again, in those conversations, when you, not necessarily appropriation, but when things move towards a more mainstream, some of the people who started kind of get left
6: behind.
0: Mm-hmm. Jim, what do you hope moviegoers
2: will take away?
6: When I first saw the film, I was just overwhelmed because it just, it introduced me to a culture I was not familiar with, and it just made such a lasting impression. The the people in this film are just so vivid, and I I literally still remember one of the last monologues at the end. I remember when Dorian is talking about how people want to be famous and leave a mark, And, and she has this immortal line where she says, you leave a mark on life just getting through it, and maybe having a few people remember your name. And, you know, that, that, that stuck on me. It was like gum on a sneaker. It's just so universal. Jim Farmer of
2: Out on Film and ballroom legend Kiara Fox. There's more about the documentary Paris is Burning on our website, wabe.orgslash city citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at eleven a.m., Michael Reese and Camille Russell Love get us prepped and pumped for Labor Day weekend's Atlanta Jazz Festival. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org/slash City Lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend and thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.